Thank you for joining me on this conversation with Dr. Nathan Crick. Dr. Crick was my favorite professor at Texas A&M. He teaches out of the communication department. And Dr. Crick has a long history with different topics, including fascism, journalism, rhetoric, very interesting things to me at least. But Dr. Crick taught me propaganda and rhetoric of Western thought. Both of those classes really pushed me to think, why do I believe what I believe? What do I believe? And how does it interact with what the world is trying to do? So I was very intrigued by those classes, and I really appreciated Dr. Crick for his interesting lectures, his comedy, his push for students to be excellent, at least with me. I really appreciated how he always tried to get me to produce excellent work. Um, Dr. Crick is a funny guy. He's very kind. Um, yeah, I appreciated talking to him, and I enjoyed it. So I hope you do, too. Dr. Crick, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Cole? Doing pretty good. I'm here in the, uh, I can't remember the name of it. I'm in a meditation room in a co-working space in Durham, North Carolina. This is my third episode and my third different background. So I think it's going to change every time, but it's pretty (laughs) good. It's important to meditate with words and other people. (laughs) That's the whole point of it, isn't it? It's to talk and to not have a chance to think. It's to just speak, but... Well, one of the things about meditation is that often people think of the meditation as silence, but it can also be a verbal repetition of sounds that make us honed into things. So uh, this is very uh, progressive of you. That's the professor in you making it sound a lot cooler than it actually is, but that's a good way of talking about it. But uh, why don't you just kind of start us off? Just tell me, tell us like who you are, where are you right now? What's kind of your story? Uh, Well, I am in my office at Texas A&M, so these are my books. Uh, They're real real books. They're not like a background. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a green screen, a Zoom green screen. Yes, Uh, and so because you never know. Um, And so those are some things. So uh, I'm at Texas A&M, and uh, although I was not a native of Texas, I'm from Massachusetts, uh, and then I was from LSU, and I lived in Portland and Pittsburgh, so I've been around a little bit. So I've been here for about 10 years. Uh, in the communication and journalism department. We changed our name, by the way. Mm. Um, and I uh, study rhetoric and philosophy and technology uh, and how it relates to democracy and politics and things of that sort. Um, pretty much everything in a big mishmash of stuff. So I'm, um, I'm particularly interested in how you know, small things influence big things. So small technologies, ideas, and how they uh, sort of circulate around and make a lot of people do the same thing unexpectedly. So that's kind of what I study. That seems like another word for the class that you taught me, which was propaganda, but it seems like a, that's not the pretty name for it, but that is kind of what I would guess people could say could be defined as that way. But what kind of Whenever you hear the word propaganda and like, what do you kind of think of and what comes to mind? Well, when I think about it, I, you know, as a professor who studies these things, it's usually like lots of things. So I'll start with, I think, what most people think. Um, Propaganda, of course, being a bad thing, Um, that we have a notion of uh, propaganda is what the other person does and that uh, it's something that manipulates a great deal of masses to maybe do things that they shouldn't otherwise do. They fall into things that they shouldn't otherwise fall into. Um, and that it tends to be hidden and invisible and sort of manipulative at some level. So 
that tends to be the association with the idea of propaganda. Um, I myself, uh, having studied and taught this for a while, uh, look at it much more am uh, that much more ambiguity to the whole thing, because um, when you are passionate about something and want to get other people to want to feel and think the same thing, you inevitably adopt the methods of propaganda to achieve those. So, what is propaganda for? you for another person um, become something very meaningful and very important when you are the one speaking. Uh, and that comes back to the original idea of propaganda being uh, originated in the Catholic Church about the propaganda of the faith. And that was the original meaning of the term um, in a post-Reformation environment. So it actually had a very like religious and conversion uh, understanding to it. So um, when we look at it in a more of a neutral sense, it just means I think propagating your ideas, propagating the things you want people to think and do at some level through whatever way you can. Um, and that's, I think, a good place to start is just like you have something and you want a lot of people to think and feel the same way. Propaganda is the instrument by which that spreads around. That's funny you say other people because it's like whenever we hear propaganda, it's like well, what comes to mind for me is like, oh, yeah, there was this thing I was reading it. It was uh, talking to people from like Ukraine and Russia, and they were like, "Do you experience propaganda?" And then they were like, "Yes, I yeah." The Russians are always like promoting it. And they're like, "What about the Ukrainians?" They're like, no, that's not what we do. And it's like this idea. It's like, no, we don't do propaganda. And it's like, could you be a victim of it? And they're like, no, I'm sure I'm not. And then you say, "Can the other people?" And they're like, "Yes, that's all they're that's all they're being fed." And it's like it is such an idea that like it's the other person. It can never be. Like me, I'm not the one doing it. It's the other person. No, that, that's a really important thing. And it's hard to, even after you learn about it, it's still hard to resist that temptation. Um, and you see, so, you know, I, would, I did an interview at the local news station about Ukraine. And, uh, you know, looking at, say, the TikTok videos that were big when they first got started, mm -hmm. uh, ordinary people out there in, you know, looking at, the things that they have to eat or going to the bomb shelter or, and, but they do it in a funny kind of way. Um, and that was really powerful propaganda from ordinary people just talking about their lives, but it really influenced, you know, public opinion in, in the United States. So it doesn't, and that's, it's important to look at that person. Oh, here's a person, ordinary teenager going to school. Suddenly they're being like bombed and they make some funny TikTok video about how their mom has to make like beet soup. And, yeah. uh, and there, it's not like, oh, this is a big, like, Nazi regime producing propaganda. This is some teenager. In a, but yet, when we look at that as propaganda, then everything kind of changes a little bit, you know? Um, and I think that's important to keep in mind. Yeah, I know it is. Especially, I wonder how much, like, writings from, like, Bernays and... Is it Elul? Is that how you would say that? Elul, yes. Elul, that French dude, right? He's French? Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's funny. I would be curious to see how they would, if they would alter what they believe about propaganda based on like new social media, like TikTok, like you say, like a girl or a dude posting a TikTok, like you would think it's a small thing. But like you said, whenever it gets 4 million views on TikTok and all these Americans are seeing it and they're like, Russia is so terrible. Like, and they get this one sided view. It's just interesting if it changes the landscape of what propaganda is at all with like social media or if it's still the same premise, just in a different medium. 
I tend to think that they would think mostly the same thing. Like, um, I mean, if you want to talk about Bernays, Bernays being, for our listeners, um, writing in the 1910s and 20s, uh, the guy, the father of modern public relations, who sort of created a new idea of propaganda, which was based on um, sort of a Freudian unconscious desires and our desire to be a part of the group. But anyway, I think he would actually be excited about social media because he would, because his whole notion is propaganda works better when everyone knows how to do it and everyone has access to it. Like it was a very much a democratization of propaganda that we need to get everything out in the open, get everyone aware of the techniques. And then we become better consumers, better citizens, because we're all, because it's not like there's the people that know and the people that don't. Right. And so for, for him to see a teenager producing something, uh, producing for free on a social platform, like he would be super excited about that. In addition to then he would market something to us. Like Facebook yeah. is really the perfection of a Brene's understanding, get people enthusiastic, get them participated and then sell them stuff. Like that's, he would love it. <laughs> yeah. Would that be like, would that be like the metaverse in Facebook's example? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, this idea of getting, you know, uh, well, I mean, the metaphors is a, t- a little bit different because that's creating a whole new structure. But um, but to the extent that we can market ourselves and be self creators, I think for him is a really exciting exciting yeah. prop- prospect. Um, for Alul, it's a different story. What is but, uh, what would you say? How would Alul differ from kind of what Bernays talks about? Well, Alul again is uh, for our listeners is um, a member of the French resistance during the Nazi occupation and um, also was a uh, Christian anarchist um, as we talked about in class being that he was very skeptical of technology. And so by Christian anarchist, I simply mean that he was someone that didn't like structure, um, not crazy about like Catholicism for instance, um, and was back to like a basic apostolic understanding of how we should do things, which is like take our shoes off and walk around and talk about important things. Like yeah. <laughs> that was like his his vision of reality as perfect. So for him, he's very skeptical of organized structures that uh, atomize human relationships. And so technology for him is definitely something that's turning us into mere recipients of huge messaging systems, and um, and that depersonalize and really turn us into sort of cogs within an algorithm and for him to see like uh how metaverse works and you know how technology is making us mere pinpoints of a complex that we can't see is really the perfection of the technological society and of propaganda itself uh he would see this as really the death of civilization whereas bernays would be like yay we get to sell more stuff and bernays like no we get to sell humanity as a product and turn us into a pod yeah Um, very dystopian yeah, what do you, I'm curious to hear your opinions on, I mean, I'm kind of unfamiliar with the metaverse and because, you know, I, I hear all these different things about yeah. it, but I'm curious to hear like from a, your perspective, whenever you think about this idea of like a new, it's like a, from the office, that second life, whenever Dwight plays it, like it is really like a whole new, a whole new way to live. Like whenever you kind of think of that in regard to, or like in relation with what you've studied, are there any like weird like not prophecies, but whenever, you know, like you read about like Aldous Huxley and he talks about these different things that he thought would come to true, come true later. Like, I wonder if there's anything you read where you've seen like the metaverse be like a fulfillment of something that people talked about. 
it certainly has a dystopian element to it. I mean, the Matrix and everything, it's hard to avoid the notion that we're creating an artificial reality that substitutes for our real reality and therefore dehumanizes us at some level. It's hard to avoid that conclusion, whether it's, um, you know, uh, Ready Player One or movies of that type. When you think about Aldous Huxley, right, um, the premise there is that we are not persuaded or not controlled through pain and oppression like 1984 and Orwell's vision, but through pleasure and uh, short-term pleasures and the maximization, the ability to get anything we want immediately makes us addicted to the systems that give us what we want and therefore make us malleable and controlled by them as long as we can get what we want. So sex and, you know, uh, basically short-term things. Mm-hmm. I think there is a, there are elements to that in the metaverse. I haven't played it myself, but I actually saw a story about it just yesterday, just like the premise was interesting. It was this uh, a woman who was a, a critic. She's like, I'm going to spend 48 hours in the metaverse. <laughs> and she opened it by saying, like, my kids would come and say, like, Mom, hey, I got to do this thing. And she's like, no, I'm on the metaverse. Study it, you know. <laughs> and, of course, yeah. the comments are like, the whole premise of you on this thing having to shut out your family, no matter what you find, proves the point that this thing is a disaster at so many different levels. Anyway, um, but the, so the idea is that she just, you go to these rooms and you see like half avatars, like you see their top, their torso, right? And you hear them talking like in their real voice, just like we are. Um, you're like, Hey, who are you? Like strange looking cop person. Yeah. It's like, Hey, I'm Benny. I'm like from you know South Carolina. You know, yeah. what are you doing? I can jump around and spin. What do you can do? Like, it's all this weird, very like random stuff happening. And, you just wander through these strange faces, hearing these voices. It feels like, um, I mean, it is kind of like a, it's like kind of a Dante aspect to it. You know, you yeah, walk yeah, yeah. through and you're like, oh, here's your person. So you could have like a person with a burning head and you're like, hey, burning yeah. head, what are you doing? They're like, oh, I'm, you know, Joe from, you know, Missouri. Um, yeah. And why is your head burning? You know, yeah. it's like, it's a kind of like <laughs> wandering through asking people, why are you doing this thing? And then they tell you their story. Yeah. You know? I wonder so. what is so appealing. Like what is so, if it's just the idea and if COVID affected how people view the metaverse, cause you know, we're in COVID and it seemed like whenever we'd hop on zoom class and all these different things, it was like you, d- you didn't have to be vulnerable, right? You could like turn your camera off. You could not say anything. You could never put your skin in the game. And I wonder if it's the same with the metaverse where like, you can go in, make this super hot character and go talk to all these like probably not women, but they're probably like weird <laughs> dudes. But I wonder what is so appealing about the metaverse and if COVID had something to do with like its rise to popularity and stuff. It's hard to say because I don't. Uh, I don't actually know anyone who uses it. I should ask my students if they have um, this semester because we're getting into that toward the second semester. But um, one thing that uh, it's that well, one thing about like you don't know who you're talking to. To some degree, you do at least now because you have the the actual audio of their voice. True. Right. So you can tell if they're an old man or a woman or a girl or whatever. Um, but, of course, then you add the element, because if it's possible, it's necessary, of voice modulation, voice simulators, so that I can speak as if I'm somebody else. And then you don't know, right? So that one element, right now, there's a connection with the real because the voice seems real. 
as soon as you have voice modulation, which I'm sure exists already, it's just not widely, but as an actual application in your app, which I know is inevitable, then you really don't know who you're talking to. Um, you have no idea. And, you, and it could be a bot. Like, and once you introduce yeah. AI uh, and the idea of a conversation bot um, with a different voice, you could just be talking to computers. You, uh, and the fact is that at any point, you in the metaverse don't know because at anything that can be attached to reality can be simulated as a reality. So it's just pure. So at, like, at some level, when you go in there, you almost have to think that it really is just a simulation. As soon mm -hmm. as you assume connection with the real, you're in the position where you're going to be manipulated. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing about propaganda to some extent is that when you assume something is true, oh, that's obviously going to be true. That's a baseline reality. Mm -hmm. That's the point at which you can be manipulated, at, at which point you end up with just pure virtual simulation. But yeah. then you've lost reality altogether. Yeah. And... <laughs> so it's a little bit of a paradox. I did want to say something. Uh, it's just, it's just, I mean, you probably want to follow up, but um, we were talking about Zoom classes and stuff. Yeah. And you're like, what would happen if I could create a, instead of doing the Zoom with the face, mm -hmm. which at this point people hate. Yeah, yeah, um, it is. It's like offensive. To, they're like, you don't have to turn your camera on. Like, no <laughs> one should have to turn their camera on. I'm like, okay. Yeah, it's uh, people because you got like the two people who pay attention and yeah. everyone does. It's weird. <laughs> yeah. well, what happens when you just create avatars for yourselves? Yeah, and you're in a room where you can actually move around in the room. So I'd be giving a lecture, say, with my real voice, um, and it's in a fake classroom where you have to join to have your avatar there, and then you could move around, and then I could call on you in the fake room. There is there is an element where. I could see that being more attractive and in some way more, more educational mm. than the pretense that we are actually face to face in the same room. You see what I mean? Like there is actually an improvement to go all the way with the virtual and not mm. pretend that we're, we're actually being somewhere. Yeah. You know I get what, what you're mean? saying. Yeah. Um, I think people would feel like looser, but it would also be more chaotic because then the characters start hopping around and then yeah. they start attacking each other. Yeah. And I'd have to be like, it would be super distracting. Yeah. And then it just becomes a playground. You know? Yeah. Have you ever, did you ever get a uh, zoom bombed during COVID? Did you ever hear about that? No, I didn't, but I know a few of my colleagues did. Yeah. yeah. So and they, there was this whole thing about passwords and privacy. I think the university found a way to sort of crack down on it a little bit, but that's, that's yeah. like super funny. Like, I, yeah. <laughs> like oh I my God, just saying like <laughs> terrible things. Like you all suck. <laughs> this whole university sucks. Yeah. Like, that kind of thing. Yeah. That's what it was like. I wonder if you went into the metaverse, the amount of like, like chaos that people could bring on. Cause you think with zoom, like it's that much. And you're like, Okay. Well, if someone has access to an avatar and like hacking, I like I right. couldn't even imagine the consequences <laughs> of what could come from that. And it just that's the thing is it just takes one it takes one thing. It takes one thing that a hack or change and all your stability and assumption goes out the window. Mm -hmm. Um and it's it's really hard to have in in a in a virtual space a kind of um to have any assumption that everything's going to be okay. Even when somebody's just audio glitches. Yeah. And, uh, and they're like, hey, oh, 
up, up, and everyone's just like, your camera's, your, your, your thing's off, your thing's off. And yeah. they just say that. Like, it's sort of like malaise comes over everybody. And they're like, hold on, we got to check our mic. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Oh, and, and, and it's hard to get people back. Mm-hmm into it you know that's the thing about the human mind which is interesting we're getting off of propaganda here a little bit but um but the idea of the assumption of a certain basic continuity of out experience that i can rely on something i can i know it's something's going to happen or something that's going to happen next and when that thing doesn't happen our brain kicks into a different kind of gear where you're like what, why did this happen? Why is it, is it going to happen next time? And as soon as that happens, you can't think progressively anymore because you're worried about that next thing happening. You're, you're disrupted. And the, there's a, so when you're thinking, especially learning, there has to be a, continu, a, a continuity of a certain stability of what's happening, an expectation of what's coming next. And the, uh, the way that we're in digital throws everything into disarray. And it's hard to concentrate. Yeah, there was a, that makes me think of the Pratt, Kennison, Aronson, that one is like Age of Propaganda, that one story where it's like, there was this cult back in the 80s, I think it was, and uh, the leader was like, on, I don't know, like January 6th, it's, the UFO is going to come, it's going to pick us all up, we're going to be out of here, like, you need to come with us, and then... Like that, everyone, all the preparations building up, everyone's getting excited. And then January 7th comes, and everyone's like, What the heck happened? Like, why is there no one here? And then she's like, Our dedication to the cause actually allowed God to give us a break. And it's like that idea that you talk about whenever it's like, Whenever that disruption happens, I wonder how many people in that group were like, Uh, I don't, or if they were so, like you said, that idea of like you assume that something is real, that's when you be, like you can be manipulated. So I wonder, I would be curious to see their mind after that, if they were so entrenched where they were like, yeah, she's right, that I, yeah. I can see that. Or if they were like, no way, dude, that's, so, that's such baloney. But I don't know, I'm curious, I'd just be so curious to see what those people think of. Well, we I mean, we can see live, uh, we can see this live in the sense of like QAnon conspiracies. True. And, which is basically the conspiracy of all conspiracies. It just lumps everything together in this one giant. And everything they say is wrong. Every single <laughs> prediction, every single thing has been wrong. And yet it grows and grows and grows. Yeah. Um, and so there's like, well, how could that be? JFK Jr. did not show up. You know, yeah. I think we, I think it was, that, I think it was our class. That, 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 I can't remember. Mm, but there, they, remember. Did you remember that? Was that no. in our, oh, well, there was a, there was uh, the idea that JFK Jr. was going to reveal himself in Dallas last, wow. I guess it was last year. And there was actually 300 people showed up Wow! for the announcement of JFK Jr. in real time at a real place. And he didn't show up. Um, but they still think he's going to show up. They think JFK is still alive. Like the actual mm. JFK is still alive somewhere. Um, and, and there's a like, and so what you have to do is you look for, why it didn't happen. And then you just have new opportunities for more propaganda. Well, it didn't happen because someone betrayed us or it didn't happen because, you know, there's always a reason why a thing. And that just plugs into some other part of this grand system. And then it becomes a great mystery. So when here with, when you're in the conspiracy theory, right, 
the idea of discontinuity is continuity, which is that your violet, your expectations are always violated, that nothing is ever stable, right? So you go from two levels. One is there's I, I'm in a classroom, I know what's going to happen, uh, and this is reality. Two, I'm in a virtual space where anything can happen, and then I just expect that everything can happen, right? So you have these two poles of like constancy and inconstancy. And the weird thing is that this it's in this in-between zone where you assume certain things to be real, but that certain things are not, where, where that's where most people live in this weird place. And mm. it's between these two extremes, like the metaverse kind of idea, right? Yeah. I leave reality and then I'm a place where everything can happen, like Ready Player One. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, anyway, I don't know what that comes to. Yeah. But <laughs> no, I also thought of, that made me think of the, I was trying to think of like what are other if there were any bigger ones, and I thought of the um, like the election last year. Whenever people were like, I kept seeing because like you know I come from a conservative area, and I see like people who are like the Kraken's going to be released. Like we're going to see all these court cases, and I'm like, wow, that's crazy. Maybe it is, and then nothing happens, and I'm like, <laughs> dude. And then they keep talking about it. I'm like, how do you come to that conclusion? And then like. I think of, so I thought of the, like the dissonance you have to have. So probably those same people I would assume would say like systemic racism, they would probably be like, no, that's not a real thing. Like we can't put a face on it. We can't, there's no like law. And then they're like, well, it's stolen. And you're like, who stole it? And then they're like, it's everywhere. The courts. And you're like, it's probably the same idea you have whenever you think like these other people who think the same thing, you're like, there's no tangible and then they're like, well, it's all going to be revealed. That's all coming out. Like the courts, every single person's corrupt. And you're like, that's a bold thing, man. Like, I don't know how <laughs> you kind of see these two, like you see systemic racism as some crazy idea. And then you are like, yeah, it was stolen. And you're like, all right. Like, how do you justify those differences? Yeah. It, I mean, the, the conspiracy mindset, that's important not to always assume to be the right either, but um, that. There, there, it's important to remember that this is addictive, and this is one of the Alul theses that mm-hmm. um, that propaganda is addictive. It's not because what what we don't understand when we look at propaganda from a distance is we think of it like a series of facts of proofs, like you were saying. How could you believe this when it's obviously not factually true? That's not why people believe or don't believe something. They believe it because they like it or because it gives them excitement. And the thing about like QAnon, for instance, is that every day. You can turn on your computer and you're going to find a new exciting thing. It's like being part of a, a game, like a, a puzzle room or something, escape room. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. there's always like some new puzzle to solve that's going to get you out. And that's exciting in a world where things are boring. Um, yeah. And that some basic level of, and, and basic antipathy, right? I don't like this group and I want to find some new thing that's going to tell it to me. And so a lot of times when people don't, they find that the thing that they assumed to be bad wasn't true, they'll say something like, well, it was essentially true. Um, meaning that the spirit of it was true, even if the fact was not. The, the, the guy's still an asshole, but yeah. he's just not, might have lied about that particular thing. But he lied yeah. about some other damn thing. I'm yeah. pretty sure of it, right? And it's hard, like, if you think about, say, Putin, right? So if we go about something that that we and I, like, generally think the guy's an asshole, right? And, yeah. so, and he's, like, doing really terrible things. Like, I believe that to the extent that I have viewed enough news and stuff. Now, mm-hmm. you say, well, that's propaganda, whatever. But most people, you know, don't like the guy. 
Um, it's hard not to believe things like, like that he blew up the pipeline or that he assassinated all these people. And it might actually be true, but any bad story I hear about Putin, I am inclined to believe it Mm. because I'm like, well, it's the kind of thing he would do. (laughs) Right. Mm. And so I have an immediate animus toward him that's been produced by my environment. Yeah. And I am, I personally, right. Knowing everything I know about propaganda, (laughs) believe in my heart, like, even though I've never met the guy, I've never been to Russia. I don't know anything yeah. outside of what's fed to me. Yeah. Um, I'm confident that the guy is really terrible. And yeah. believe it. So, so when we put it in that way, uh, and the things that we just are sure of, tr- of being true for us, the good guys, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, the good guys. Uh, and, <laughs> well, wait a minute. And then you're like, well, are, and then if you question that, you're like, well, wait a minute, you're trying to propagandize me and make, so you're saying that Putin's not a, an yeah. assassin and a, yeah. you know, genocidal maniac. I don't like, I don't yeah. know. Like, yeah. um, or if you talk about social issues, this goes back to like Bernays where like racism, bad thing. Like we should get rid of that or misogyny and, you know, things like, like discrimination. Like these are things where when we see and we're like, the, I'm confident these are good things and that these people are victim of bad things. And mm-hmm. I would like to get rid of those bad things by exposing these people. Right. Um, and I feel justified in doing that. I am caught up myself in a propaganda system where I'm inclined to disbelieve certain people, certain things in certain ways. And, and maybe they're right, but but that feeling, it's the key thing is, is that feeling of hunting out evil, of being able to expose it, of mm-hmm. being able to get other people to see that feeling is universal when it comes to propaganda. It t- taps into our feeling that we are doing good, that we are defending right, that we are, that we are being heroes for the cause. And that <laughs> yeah. is a hard thing to break. Yeah. That's what I uh, remember all like, if you, I would just look on Facebook Every single, whenever someone would do something that was like generally regarded as like nice or good, like, well, I mean, it's kind of controversial, but like the vaccine, people would be like, and they would like put it on their Facebook or something. Probably like, I don't know their intention, but if they did that, people would be, I know that some people, at least on the conservative side, not probably not all, but would be like, they're just virtue signaling. And it's like, maybe they are like, maybe, but then like in the same way that you're saying, I wonder if you could flip it and be like, by you saying that now you're like <laughs> you're trying to be this like champion of the right like champion of freedom yeah. and even like the dudes i saw in the airport the other day it was like lions not sheep clothing something and i was like like what makes you think like that idea <laughs> like you would just think as someone who thought that way you wouldn't even have to wear a shirt like you just are but you're like no i'm gonna wear this shirt because i am and it's like <laughs> this idea of trying to be a part of something that like you said is the good guys and we want to have someone bad. It's, it is so, I mean, every single day we try to do it. It seems like, at least for me. Well, I remember, uh, it was when I was in high school, there was, I was out at some like, sh- uh, uh, Brock show or something. Yeah. And I heard these two kids talking outside. And it was just a clip of a of, of conversation. And one guy's like, dude, he had an anarchist t-shirt. Like <laughs> what a hypocrite. And, and it's like, because he made a t-shirt that's structured and said anarchy yeah. on it. And it's like, if you're yeah. a real anarchist, you wouldn't make an anarchy freaking t-shirt <laughs> yeah. and sell it. Right. And so, but it was, but he's that, that basic comment is kind of like what you were saying. Yeah. But I want to like this idea of virtue signaling, such a wonderful term because it's a wonderful propaganda term. 
Like, yeah. Because as soon as you say virtue signaling, you are being you are tied up into a propaganda system, which has made virtue into something to signal. And it goes back to a long history of that goes all the way back to St. Paul and the idea yeah. that don't show your goodness. And it's, it's but then I'm like, but then you show your goodness by criticizing other people for showing their goodness. Right? And so you can't yeah. get out of this trap. Yeah. And then the idea that virtue is something that I need to signal is what virtue is for the Greeks. Like that's mm. what virtue is. It's just a signaling of excellence in order to establish, raise the bar of to say, this is what goodness is. Cause how else do you teach virtue if not to signal it when yeah. it, it's like, when you have a child, you're like, yeah. Oh look, that person did a good thing. I want you to do that. What you're doing is you're signaling what a virtue is. And then when you do a good thing, you're saying, this is what you should do when you're in, you know, help someone. If, if signal, if virtue is not something to signal, then it doesn't exist right, yeah, yeah, in, yeah. as a communicative form. And yet we've turned it into something that every time something says that is a good thing, I can call it virtue signaling and turn it into a bad thing. Yeah. Right. It's amazing. It is crazy, yeah, that you can flip it. Because that was interesting. I never thought about the idea, like, where virtue signaling came from, where it's like, that's probably because it's a conservative idea, like, probably, like, the Bible Belt, whenever Paul's like, you know, don't let your, like, don't try, I mean, I don't know exactly what they're referencing, but it's probably, like, whenever you do good deeds, try not to just show them off, so. But I can, that is an interesting idea that ties back to that in a way, but, yeah, it's a lot of, it's just crazy that, like you said, you can flip it, and it's like, this, I was listening to um, – it was an Intelligence Squared debate about oh, – I can't remember what. Or it was probably woke, uh, like cancel culture. Cancel culture is what it was. And it was like the idea of woke – like it's the same thing with saying woke. It's like yeah. someone brings up an idea that maybe like goes against what a lot of people have said. Like saying something like systemic racism. Like this, just even the idea of it. They're like, yeah. oh, I'm not woke. Like that's woke. That's woke. And it's like, bam, you just shut it down. And there's not even – because like you said, you can just kill it and you just be like, no, well, it's woke. And then everyone who wants to gang up on there is like, yeah, it's woke, it's woke, it's woke. And then it's like not even in the conversation anymore. Yeah, the, the word doesn't really mean anything. Like, yeah. <laughs> like the word woke doesn't mean really anything. It, I mean, I guess it's origin. It just means being awake to social injustice or something yeah. along these lines. But but when I say wokeism or something along these lines, what it means is, yeah, it goes back to virtue signaling idea, which is that – any good thing, and this is a, an amazing way that um, propaganda works, is it's through basic charity, right? That if I take an uncharitable stance toward people, then, any, then, uh, then anyone who does the best things becomes the devil attempting to be good, manipulate by showing goodness, right? And so as soon as you say, well, you're just doing it for whatever, yeah. this is Kenneth Burke talks about this with, uh, he calls it debunking, right? Debunking is where any any good thing becomes a veneer for a bad thing. And all I have to do is assume that there's a bad thing behind anything whatsoever, and it becomes the opposite of what it appears to be, right? Um, and Or even, and you can even say, the fact that I don't do things becomes, like, so you could say, yeah. like, well, I don't, I don't make a big stink of what I do. I just try yeah. to, like, oh, well, you're just, <laughs> you're just, the fact that you've denied that you do things is a, is a virtue signaling, and yeah. therefore you're woke. And so it all comes back to uh, basic assumptions of this group, I think charitably about, this group, I don't. Um, 
these people are virtuous, these people are virtue signalers. And that mm-hmm. is a divide between us and them that propaganda works. And the vocabulary of fake news or all this stuff where there's an appearance and a reality, that, that revert that ability to invert anything into its opposite is what propaganda gets us in the habit of doing. Uh, so that we can switch the bad to the good, just like, uh, you know, tr- the Trump is a great example of this, yeah. right? Um, with everything, if you look at it, of all the things he's done and admitted to doing, right? All terrible things or whatever. And you can take that and say like, well, wait a minute, he admits his faults and therefore he is actually more virtuous than the people yeah. that pretend to be bad, pretend yeah. to be good, but are actually assholes. He's an asshole and he just admits it. And that's an <laughs> yeah. important thing because, because I appreciate honesty yeah. and that's what, you know, and so everything can be turned upside down, you know? Oh, that's um, such an interesting idea. Yeah. I didn't even make that connection, but it's like people like, especially man, it's like from like the Bible belt. It's like, you would think that like, you would think you look at, say a candidate, maybe from the democratic side. Right. And they've, they, like, I'm pretty sure Donald Trump didn't, he, I mean, didn't he cheat on his wife with like that porn stuff? Didn't that happen? Wasn't that a thing? Well, I mean, he, he of course cheated on his wife with his second wife and then yeah. his third wife. And like he's, yeah. he's, he's cheated on his wife. And then the whole porn star thing, well, that that's, you know, we don't know that exactly happened. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's hypothetical, but you know, yeah. he is not known for his fidelity. Yeah. And it's pr- proven that way. He talks about it constantly. Yeah. Like, there's tons of things of him on tape doing it. Yeah. Um, and that's what you would think, like, if we apply, if people from the Bible Belt applied that same idea of, like, espousing this man who's been committed to his wife, he loves his wife, he serves her. And then, like, you see Donald Trump, and they're like, well, he's just honest, man. And I love that. I love that about it. And he calls it like it is, which, like, it is, it is different whenever he does that. But it's like, you would think that, for all of the criticism that like could be that probably would be directed to the other side. It's like forgiven. Like you said, whenever it's our group or like it's the good guys, like, and it's not the bad guys. It's like, you could just flip it and make anything look like a good thing. It's just crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And it becomes, and, and for left and right, it's all the same. Um, and because you can, the, the, Again, the human brain is amazing in the way that it can switch and resolve cognitive dissonance. Right? Mm-hmm. Two things are in contradiction, and I can transcend it. I can do all sorts of things. Um, as, as if it's my person, then I can always find a way to like wiggle out of it. And it doesn't mean that they're lying. It means that you believe in something. Like the important thing is that my candidate, whoever it is, adheres to it, says the things that I want them to say. You know, mm-hmm. personal idiosyncrasies, that can be washed out, turned this way and that. Uh, and then the other side can accuse me of hypocrisy. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, because everything can be changed. And that's the whole important thing is that we can't rely, you know, in a propagandistic world that we say, oh, this class of people, well, this obviously is what they would do or think. That is not at all what we can assume. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> everything can be changed based on very slight changes in the way my interest falls um, and by my relationships are, it's, it's really hard to predict, um, these days. Yeah. And that's what, I can't remember if it was Bernays or Alul who was saying like, it'd be foolish of someone to try to attack like a mainstream, like a mainstream value, but instead to just like subtly hit at like the core values of it and then just subtly change it. And then I think of like how, 
how certain certain ideas like drug use, like marijuana and like homosexual, all these different I values that were probably like 30 years ago taboo. How how does it come to a place where it's like it's all like it's praised? It is praised in a way, not necessarily praised, but it's it's just a whole different it's a whole different mindset, and that's what I just wonder how and who was behind that change. And I'm curious to see if you have any ideas about that. Well, I think who is behind it is maybe the wrong question. Then you get into conspiracy theory, like um, no, because true. there is no who behind any of it, right? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's much more like, uh, and that's where in our algorithmic culture, like that algorithms are things that just pick up on trends and repeat them. They don't have any aim. Right, they just repeat things that oh, this seems to be an interest. Blah, 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 blah. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of it is uh, it's it's more like practices, and there is a kind of you know I want to make sure that it's not like we're evaporating reality. There's a basic practices that people do in the world um, that I think, at a personal level, endure. Right, relationships, things that make people fall in love, that make their families get together, that they mm-hmm. like doing together, right? And and we all have worlds that are sort of immune to propaganda, and it's important to acknowledge that. That propaganda doesn't seep into every single part of our lives, at least yet. We have places where we are we feel free because we're with a few people, we're talking, we're not um, we're not exposed to other things. But then we kind of pop into it. So like if I'm in a waiting room by myself and I'm sitting on my phone, I'll just scroll through. And then I'm, I'm kind of isolated, right? This is like the, the mass individual we talked about with Alul. This person that's sort of like detached from and floating around. Person mm-hmm. in the subway. Person like imagining them in a street. Or, or even like uh, some of the things we saw, like some like teenage girl who's living out in South North Dakota but is so lonely that she's plugged into some you know, terrorist group all day. Right. Um, and, and even though she's not in a city, she's more propagandized than that because she's not exposed to human beings. But the point is that we have, um, we do have personal lives that are real. And the more that we actually find ways to find pleasure in relationships, if I'm um, gay or whatnot, and like the more that happens and you're like, Hey, this is okay. And the more that becomes normalized propaganda sometimes can't they can't resist those trends forever like they mm. have to go with the flow and Alul and Bernays both say this propaganda can't create reality out of nothing right it's important to acknowledge that mm. that some things people just like doing and then they find that they don't mind it right it's scary when it's a difference but now that you know especially in the last four decades sort of um you know uh lbg lbgtq plus you know the sort of like the length of that yeah. the number of numerals has become like hey it doesn't bother me like whatever mm-hmm. um do whatever you want to do that that's meaningful and that's a real change in the way that uh that has to do with tra- like media representation it has to do with transportation has to do with us just being able to see different people and become normal that's that it becomes normal for us like that's a real change in the real world and propaganda has to kind of go with that uh, it, it, it follows sometimes on the heels of actual practices and then, um, but it is heavily influential on the world outside of us. Um, so one of the problems is, and, and I know you want to talk about technology and, um, is that at the one hand we can travel, we can see more things than we ever saw before physically and virtually. 
On the other hand, we can only, we are able algorithmically to isolate ourselves to only those things that we want to see. Hmm. So there's this kind of twofold movement of people that are incredibly diverse. They move around, they see lots of stuff. And then people that almost live in these little canals that have been carved for them where they can only see certain things and they can isolate themselves from everything else and only get messages that appeal to them. Mm. Um, so we have this twofold movement of incredible isolation and incredible diversity um, operating side by side uh, in a weird sort of way that I don't think has ever really been that way in human history. Mm. That's another, I don't know if this is exactly how it was phrased, but I was reading a little bit more about, I think it might have been a little, but it was like how people who are poorer don't even necessarily have, or it might have, no, 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 it might have been Age of Propaganda, actually. I think it was talking about how poorer people don't even have, like, they're just immune because propaganda is all about this idea of, like, choosing and stuff like that. I can't remember if that was exactly it, but it was like, they don't even have a choice, so it's mostly just to rich people or like people who can afford to have choices. And I think of like that travel example, that's what kind of comes to mind, but I don't know if that's exactly how it was phrased. Well, it is like talking about class. I think it was Alul actually. He was talking about the, um, the people that are sort of, that, that there has to be a level of literacy and leisure for propaganda to really work. Mm-hmm. Right? I need to be able to have time to consume it. And I need to be able to, be able to understand what I consume. And when you're talking about poverty, um, it's it's often less education and uh, less resources, more labor, um, more just basic life necessities. And if I'm working two jobs, if I don't have a have a crappy internet plan or no internet plan, I have to take the bus every day. Yeah. You know, I am so beset by life's necessities that um, propaganda just doesn't have time to get into my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might have some basic entertainment. I might reflect some basic ideas of my surroundings, likes and dislikes, but my world tends to be very small. Um, and uh, especially when you're talking about developing countries where there's, uh, where there's places where there's just not a lot of uh, connectivity at all. Um, there, so propaganda, we, uh, so it's one of the misconceptions. People say, oh, propaganda is, is targeting the, the, the ignorant that, that is not what they're targeting. They're targeting largely people with middle resources, mm. people that have a cell phone that can sit and have the time to talk to their friends and have a social media account who feel like they're worldly enough to comment on affairs. There has to be a notion that I am, I am my, my opinion is important enough mm. because I'm an educated person. So actually the most propagandized people tend to be the slightly upper middle class, largely the white population, who um, feels privileged and feels like their view needs to be heard. Mm-hmm. Those people consume propaganda like crazy because they want to feel like the powerful movers in society. Um, and even though they are the very people that claim to be above propaganda, to be mm-hmm. the people that are, uh, and, but yet they are the ones who are most propagandized because they have the leisure time and because they are the ones, and here's an important thing, that propaganda still is a profit-driven enterprise. Mm-hmm. They are the people with money to be able to pay and support, either through advertising or direct subscription, um, the, the resources that are targeted toward them. So they are the key prime example um, of, of the key audience, I should say. Yeah. 
no, that's, I mean, that's what makes me, again, it just comes to my mind that not dichotomy, but the two sides of the coin of like COVID, like the vaccine, like people have, there are these two waves of, well, I mean, it's not only two, but the majority were like, no, I'm never going to get it. Or like, yes, I am going to get it. And like, for some people, they didn't even feel like they had that option. Like you say, for some people who had to work all day there, maybe they were like the, can't, what were they, what were those people called who had to like, they had, we were, it was like the people who had to work. Like those people probably didn't even think that they had a choice, but then it's these people who are in these, the freedom to choose who can be like, yeah, I don't need it because I have good healthcare or something like that. Yeah. But it seems like those are the people who were having the most sway in, because the, I mean, the government at, at some point is kind of irrelevant. It seems like, it seems like it's mostly, at least for me, like whenever I got the Johnson Johnson vaccine, it wasn't because the government, like the government wasn't telling me, I was like, my brother was asking me, he's like, what do you think about it? And then he went and he was like, you want to go get it? And I was like, not really, but if you're going to go, like, it's just this idea of like some people who have the freedom, like you said, to make that decision. I don't know if you would agree that the government really didn't have a say, but it was more of the people, but that's at least what well, it seemed like to me. I mean, uh, I mean, they didn't really, I mean, you can't, like the mandates and such uh, were tough because you're you're using a, a blunt tool and people mm-hmm. just tend to resist blunt tools no matter what it is they they push back against it um, even if it's for their own good or whatnot um, just because that's what people do it's just like trying to push a cat out a door you know you know you don't it just like they, they push back yeah um, because they don't want to be bossed around and that's it's important for prop that's a failure of propaganda right propaganda is supposed to make the idea come from you and be mm-hmm. like yes this is my idea. And that's why the anti-vaccine propaganda was so powerful because it, it tapped into that heroism of no yeah. one's going to tell me what to do. I make my own decisions Yeah, just because you had someone telling you what to do. Mm-hmm. So if the government wanted you to take it, they'd be like, don't take it. It's dangerous. And they'll be like, oh, damn it. Don't tell me what to do. I'm going to yeah. take five of them. Right? <laughs> so you, so there's a natural uh, heroism to the anti stuff. And yeah. that's the anti whatever is always going to be a heroic personality where the people that say oh yeah that's a great idea i'm gonna stand in line like a freaking sheep right you know and so you, <laughs> you feel like you know i gotta do this and you gotta go through all this stuff um yeah. uh so it uh yeah it definitely tapped into that propaganda um uh, structure of of as long as it comes down to my opinion the thing is that the you know when you think about vaccines that we get vaccines all the time about everything you mm-hmm. know um, so this is like no different than any other vaccine, but it just became a symbolic thing, uh, about all, it got tapped into this whole large conspiracy motif. And it just shows that anytime that propaganda wants something to pull into its sphere, it all it has to do is connect it with all this other stuff. And suddenly it becomes once again, a signal or a symptom mm-hmm. of everything that I already have in my mind. They didn't even have to concoct anything. They just had to say, Oh, well, this is obviously the government trying to control you. It's this, that, the other thing. Yeah. And then the crazy thing is that like in China, uh, at least again, you're, uh, what's this, my own propaganda, right? A lot of these authoritarian regimes were using the propaganda, were using the COVID vaccine to track people and to yeah. get it into their whole engine of, of presenting it as a noble thing, but then using it to collect data so they could follow you around wherever you go. Uh, and then that becomes part of the authoritarian regime of bureaucratic control that Alul's concerned with. So then there's, so there's like, are actually a reality to it. 
which yeah. is tough to figure out what to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, because that's what because like yeah like you said there there is like pieces of it that are true which make it kind of hard you're like what's happening in china and you're like oh well yeah kind of and it's but it's like it's different but it's it's just a whole different frame of mind it seems like that that propaganda kind of plays and what you kind of think makes such a difference as to but it's yeah it is so powerful whenever you have bits of truth that can stick in there and are hard to dispute you're like well yeah i see that but it's like you, it's just a different way of thinking beyond just yeah. those small pieces that are true. And that's that what they, the little calls like rational propaganda, which is propaganda is always based on some truths. It mm-hmm. has to be, has to touch the world somehow. Uh, and it just has to get you enough to be like, and this is what the yes ladder, right? The idea of, oh, well, yeah, yeah. Right? do you know this little fact? Is you remember that was true? Like, yeah, I remember that. And as soon as you say, yes, I remember that. Now you're in a, a mo- there's momentum and then there's mm-hmm. another and another. And well, didn't you think it weird that this didn't happen based on like, well, yeah, it was a little strange. And then, you know, <laughs> everything starts coming together. It's yeah. very easy when you start with some basic truths um, that you go from there. You know, it popped into my head. You know, I mentioned this in the class, you know, uh, we've been watching a lot of X-Files with my family. You know, mm. we're going through the whole series. And it's very interesting to look back, especially on some of the earlier episodes, the myth episodes, um, of, of the mindset of Mulder or the sort of alien conspiracies, like the way he ties things together, the way he sees evidence. It's almost identical to the structures of how like QAnon and the, the, the big conspiracy theory works. It's all the same stuff and it's uh, the same mentality. And, and a lot of it's like evidence by absence. Because you show up and you're like, wait a minute, normally there's things here, but there's nothing here. And the only way that nothing could be here is if something were here. Mm. And that has to be true because it isn't, because there is no evidence for it. Like, yeah. <laughs> he does this constantly. Like evidence of absence is not like, uh, or absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, right? Yeah. Um, but that it's fascinating to see a lot of this plugged in, especially when that was a Fox show as well, to kind of train us to see conspiracies and, and the X-Files was a perfect example. of that. Whenever you talk about that idea, like propaganda, because I'm sure there are people who would listen and be like, Oh, I'm not going to be touched by propaganda or like all these different things where it seems like propaganda has to go. That's what that same idea. I did want to talk about a little with technology. It's like this idea was like the most efficient society. Was that the argument? It was like, no, you, and you can't stop it, like, you, or else you're yeah. going to become irrelevant in society. But yes, yeah, so the idea of being technique is the word. Technique is any methods designed for the absolute efficiency in any sphere of human activity. Um, so this idea of efficiency is very vague, but it's a notion that um, at least with things that we do, things that like processes. That there's a certain end point. So even think like college admissions, right? We want uh, to get the best students and the most of them, right? So technique comes in and says, well, what are the techniques that we can use to get those students on board to um, to apply to go through this system? And it's a it's a benign, a benign thing, 
the technique comes in and basically what it says is, look, these are the proven things you've been doing. So maybe I'll, maybe I was some old college and I'd be like, well, you know, we're an old college and we do everything face to face. And, you know, mm-hmm. maybe I'm the old Dean and I'm like, well, they used to come to my office and we'd have tea yeah. and uh, we'd talk about their lives and I'd really get to know them very well. And then we'd sit around with our group and try to figure out who's the best. And that's the way it's always done. And they're like, well, your admissions rate's going down and down and down. And then you hire some consulting firm and they come in with their PowerPoints and they're like, look, you need to have a social media presence and we need to have uh, things on Facebook and we need to go through, we need to have like a, you know, a a, a training, a a tour that's with young people and blah, 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 blah. And these things are all proven to work. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, damn it, no. And then I'm, and now now I'm reassigned to like the, uh, you know, the back room somewhere. And now, and and then basically my admissions becomes the same as everyone else's. It's the Mm. same exact thing. And every university you go to, it's basically the same design because technique has proven these to be successful. So, so technique influences all of our lives everywhere. Um, And the, like you said, the question was like this university, universities either adapt or they die. Right, especially as small universities, and we see this now with COVID. Right, post COVID, uh, Zoom stuff. Mm. Uh, the little small universities got really hit hard because their coziness was their appeal. And when you just dissolve that, then it just becomes a screen. And who wants to go to this cool little yeah. university? Um, and so they have to find. They have to be like, okay, we got to reshuffle everything because our endowments diminishing. And so they have to then just turn themselves into totally, or they die, right? And so when you think about this with, um, we often use the example of athletes and when we were, you know, in our class and talking about it. And I think that's a good way to think about it, especially with young people, you know, how am I going to be a baseball or a football? Well, you got to start when you're eight and then you got to go through all this and then you got to do the summer groups and then you got to do, you got to get the equipment and then you got to go to the training session and you got to have certain workouts and then you got to do this, that, and the other thing. And you got to, um, there's a thing that you have to do. And if you don't and you get offline at any point, you're out. Hmm. So propaganda is the same way, right? That we, um, we now are forced to be propagandists. There is no doubt about it. There is, um, a kind of, even my, you know, my mom is at this church in, uh, in Massachusetts and, mm-hmm. um, she, you know, it's in this small town. It used to be a vibrant, you know, like a congregational church. And, um, now it's just diminishing and diminishing and diminishing. And she's often complaining that they, there's like eight people who come and they're all old, you know, and the, and the pastor's not really doing anything. He's just yeah. like, um, he's in his, he's hardly in his office. He tr- commutes. He does the same old, same old thing. And, um, and it's like, if, if you, it's like, you have to be, you have to be a propagandist, even at these small little places that used to be self-sustaining. Now he's got to be out there and to make this church alive, you have to be, you have to have that media presence. You have to do TikTok videos. You've got to get yourself out there and do all the things to get people on board. That includes digital and regular media um, that reaches out, that spreads your message, or else your parish disappears. You know, you always have to be out there. Whether you're an author, whether you're a writer, you have to self-promote, right? Mm. The fact that I'm sitting here talking to you right now is a conversation, but it's also, you know, you could say it's a promotion for me, uh, mm. and it's a part of reaching an audience 
that, um, that I can't reach in a classroom. And that's exciting, right? So when you think about this in a job perspective or just a hobby or the fact that you're training to do podcasts at the moment, you're developing techniques, you're using software, you're developing questions. All of these are proven techniques of being a successful podcast within a competitive environment. And in many ways, that's really great. But it's also the methods of propaganda tied up with the methods of technique, um, which are now almost so inextricable that it's hard to tell them apart. Do you think that there's ever, I mean, I, I guess Elul would say no, but do you think that is ever, it's ever possible to turn back and be in a state where people would wake up to it and see where they are and be like, this is terrible. Like, I don't want to feel this way. <laughs> do you think that's possible? Or do you think that we're, do you think that what Elul would say would be true where it's like, we're, we're already this far, like you can't go back because this is how it is. I think that a lot of people want to. I think the feeling that we need to return is a constant. Uh, I think it's almost a pervasive feeling. I think there's, and even to look back on nostalgic shows like Stranger Things or, mm. you know, this idea of the 80s. You know, I grew up in the 80s when just the idea of technology was taking, like I had a modem, one of the first people to have a modem. And I would contact people on a chat board, you know, when I was, yeah. when I was tw- uh, 13, you know. Um, but, but still, we were largely in ma- we were the last mass media generation. And uh, I constantly talk about this with my kids, you know, because they're old enough now. They're teenagers. And my oldest especially, like, what was it like, you know, watching TV? And we were watching these old movies like Top Gun. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I can't wait to see Top Gun. And we sat down and watched it. And I was like, wow, half this movie is, like, crazy boring. Like, yeah. it's, and the soundtrack <laughs> is horrible. And I don't yeah. even remember most of it because yeah. I watched some of it on HBO when – it was just what was on. And I'd just go down, I'd watch like 10 minutes of it, I'd turn the TV off, I'd go, like I watched what was on and we all, and my wife and I all watched the same things because we all had the same HBO. We all watched the same and listened to the same music because we had to. Now, so we have this nostalgia for a mass-mediated generation, not a non-propagandized propagandized generation by any means, but a mass-media generation. And then this nostalgia for even before that, like the, mm-hmm. the 60s or these shows about the 50s and the 60s where it was just like newspapers and like basic TV. Um, anyway, the, the nostalgia for that is really keen um, that we want uh, uh, a time where we're just blocked out from stuff because it's exhausting. Um, and I think there are movements like the idea of a reactionary movement to resist technology which, which blends the left and the right together in many ways. Like this idea that big tech is bad. Well, that, mm-hmm. that appeals to both political spectrums. Like there's something, yeah. but yet we're all in it. Like yeah, we're exactly. like, oh, big tech's bad. I got an Amazon account. I use Google <laughs> all the time because it's damn easy. And yeah, now that exactly. I, like, I want something and I go to a store and I'm like, crap, they don't have anything. Like <laughs> I'm just going to go yeah. because what they have is like, so there's like, yeah, I want to go back, but then I think about going back and I'm like, I hated Christmas shopping Mm. in the eighties. You'd have to go to all these stores, spend like all these days, wander through these crowds, get these crappy things that you didn't have, go all the way across town. You don't even know what's there. Um, there was a kind of excitement when you found something, but it was exhausting. It was exhausting. People forget how exhausting it was to Mm. go shopping in the eighties because even in the mall, like the late eighties, the malls were ceasing to be kind of cool. When you go to the mall, that was cool because you get everything yeah. at the mall. 
But then the mall ceased to be that. And then you have to like drive every which way. So the answer to your question is, if we went back, we would all starve to death. You know, mm. obviously. Like there, there was a sense where civilization as we know it with however many billion people we have relies on such a delicate system of trade and balance. And that's what COVID revealed to us is how dependent we are on these connections with these countries we often don't even hear of to get yeah. this metal to, to make this part, to make our phones yeah. or, and, and this interdependency we have, which is such a delicate balance of algorithms and techniques that civilization hangs on such a delicate thread of, of techniques. So maximized for efficiency that a breakdown in any of those systems would cause a, a disruption in the whole chain. Um, we would all immediately first start starving and then we would kill each other over what's left. And then there would be the zombie apocalypse. Right. And, and that's scary to think of, right? That yeah. we are so, and so this idea, like I, I wrote a book on like Thoreau and, um, like Thoreau's idea, oh, we can go off to the woods or whatever. Like he lived on a property that Emerson gave him, right? Uh, he didn't live on his own. He didn't like, just, he lived on a property and yeah. he relied on the, uh, what he was doing was kind of this, wasn't saying I could live my life this way. He was just experimenting on what it might be to live his life that way. But he was at this moment of modernity where he saw the development of all these techniques growing and he wanted to test out something. And that's why Thoreau is so interesting. And we know, we're nostalgic for that. But Thoreau, like we all live like Thoreau, we would immediately consume all the natural resources in our yeah. environment, like in an instant because he yeah. was super inefficient. He was super inefficient at growing beans. Like he couldn't <laughs> grow beans. He sucked at it, but he used all this area to grow beans of which he could hardly even feed himself. Um, so, and that's the thing is that, that nostalgia for a life that we can't have is actually quite damaging. Um, what we need to do is balance it to accept what we have. We have to accept techniques. We have to accept and realize we are reliant on them to survive. Mm. But if we have to do that in a way that says, but not just to give ourselves over to it at the same time, right? There's this very delicate balance that we have to strike of realizing what necessity is and technology is a necessity that we just accept. Not feeling that we're superhuman, that we can stand up. As soon as we do that, then we're done. Like we're just, we're just sucked into conspiracy theory. We're not superhuman. We're a cog in a huge machine that, of which we have to play our role. And yet we still have to carve a life that is meaningful with people that are close to us, that we can have a wall that we can step into, that we can separate ourselves away, right? Like my house is like that. I try to, you know, eventually we have to give over to, to phones. Like my kids mm -hmm. are teenagers, but still there's the moments where we come together, we watch the same TV, we have dinner together, you know, we, we sit in the conversation, we play games together. Like it's important to have those times just to keep sane and to say that at, there's a certain, uh, a certain um, megalomania that comes with technology to say like, my position's going to change the world and I have to get this out here. And there is a point where we have to say like, what I have is enough. And maybe I should, and I think a lot of people are coming to that position, like trying to carve a, a smaller life that's meaningful mm -hmm. and not try to be climbing the ladder all the time and not, thinking we have to like reshape everything constantly at the same time that we have to know that we have to reshape everything. If the planet's not going to like destroy itself, it's a mm. very delicate se series of ideas that we have to 
be a part of. Yeah. So would that be like people who are like, you know, I'm going to be a minimalist again. And it's like, well, at the same time, if you want to be a minimalist, someone else has to be not a maximalist, whatever that word would be. Someone has to be up there pushing for the truck driver to work, you know, 18 hours so he can get the food. Like there's always for as much as someone wants that minimalism, would you say that someone else has to like correct that by being like a maximalist, I guess. (laughs) Yes. I mean, maximalist is an interesting term. Um, I would say that, you know, a lot of people that want minimalism rely upon the very structures that they claim to resist. Like you can be a minimalist often with your phone, uh, because the phone organizes so much of your life for you or Amazon can deliver what you need. You don't have to even go out. Um, you can find a small apartment, but that com- what happens is it's compression, right? Technology today can compress so much into a small space that we can feel like we're living minimally, but we still, as long as we have this point that we can access through, it all comes through just a small little point in our yeah. small little, like tiny little closet house. Like in Japan, for instance, they have these like, you know, 10 square feet houses, but they're also wired that the young people don't feel lonely. They're connected mm-hmm. with TVs and everything else and the, you know, all this stuff or their food has been compressed. Mm-hmm. So to live minimally, like, like into the wild, like that book about Krakauer wrote, the, the guy who just burns everything, goes up and lives in the wilderness, you know, and, and dies eating mushrooms. Um, he was sort of an early adopter to this idea, but, but again, he relied on the natural environment of the national parks to be able to go up and live in the wilderness mm. because yeah. it was protected by the national park service. And because of all the politics that surrounded it, right. That gave yeah. him the luxury to go up there and poach moose. And he killed a moose. Like you can't go up and get kill all the moose. <laughs> right. So, you know, and that's that idea we have to like, yeah, live minimally. But live self-consciously knowing that we are a part of the society that is connected. And that's so important to understand how much relies upon. And the people that drive the trucks and the people that are doing the jobs and making the salary and don't have the luxury that you have, who have five kids and they have to like have a single parent who has to go to a job. And they rely on all these things um, to allow them to live and that's part of the changes that I think technology that it hides that, but now it's bringing it up to the fore, like technological society to bring balance to, um, this, the inequities of society and to try to get us to realize that we don't have to have these huge concentrations Mm -hmm. of wealth. We need widespread techniques, but it doesn't have to be concentrated in like two people. Like there is, and that's as part of the dream of the technological society at some point is distribution to allow people enough to live a decent life um, and to not be fighting over these things constantly. That's a tough transition, but you know, for us to live <laughs> on the planet, yeah. like it has to happen to some degree. How would you say that like with everything you've learned with like propaganda and like technique, cause after like I took your class, it definitely like just the way you view stuff changes. Like, like you said, whenever I hear, like whenever, if I would have seen like the sheep, like the wolf, not sheep thing, I would have been like, oh, I guess he just, he just likes that brand. But it's like, it does, it's a huge paradigm shift looking at people and wondering about the psychology of like, oh, I wonder if they, if they just want to be a part of the good guys or if they, like what makes them feel that way? How do you think that, has your mind shifted like that? Have you seen that shift in your kind of perception of people? 
Well, a shift. Oh, can you clarify a shift from what to what? Like a shift from almost for me, it was like I wouldn't say like not not naive, but ignorant. Not like ignorant, like but just you don't think of things like or if you hear messages now or if I see sales ads on TV and like that one ad with the dude who it's the Fiat commercial. I will never forget that commercial. It's the guy who. For people who don't know, this dude, it's Fiat commercial and it's this like nerdy looking dude and this gorgeous woman and she's like beckoning him to come to her and he's like bewildered that she's doing it. And then it goes back to him and then it flashes back and it's just a Fiat. But it's like this idea of like we don't, it's not just the things, like it's not just things we want, it's deeper values, like a a beautiful girl saying she wants me. But like I wouldn't have thought that deeply before I took a class. But then I see that now and I'm like, they're just trying to make me think that I'm wanted by some beautiful, like they're trying to just subconsciously put that thought in my mind. And I don't know if you had, have you always thought that way or if that's just something that kind of changed as you read more and learn more stuff. Well, um, so the, you know, the compensatory substitutes of the commercial, right? Mm-hmm. I, I want love, but I think the car, the car substitutes for, for love, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, of course, it's not like subconscious. They're being very explicit in the commercial. Yeah. That's what's funny about it is that they're uh, modern advertising, just at a side of the commercial is that they're no longer trying to be subtle about it. They're just like, because people are sort of aware of it, they're just upfront. Like you can't have power, but you can have this uh, motorbike. And so why yeah. do you take the motorbike and feel powerful? And you have like some little kid going like, Yahoo! Yeah. And, and, and so they're, and they're like, yeah, I guess I do want to feel powerful. I guess I will take the bike. Um, but the larger question is like, is once you become aware of these things, you know, how does it change you? I mean, I, I always, um, you know, I always, uh, I was a writer early. Like I liked writing stories and things. So I'd always be uh, interested in seeing why people do what they do. So that's kind of why I got into this field of study is uh, mm-hmm. to write stories. You have to understand human psychology. You got to figure out what's going on. Um, and so part of it's basically storytelling, you know, propaganda is really just telling stories that people like and um, giving them parts to play in society that appeal to them. Now, when, but when I look at society, I think one of the important things is, and I, there's a kind of like movement that, First, you feel very empowered, and that, sometimes that's that's sneaky because you're like, "Oh, look at all the people they're getting hoodwinked," you know. Yeah, and then yeah. you're back to like sheeple, and I am the yeah. power, like I am the master, and yeah. and that's great. And that's once again, it's crazy that the more you learn about propaganda, if you're not careful, it you just sucked right back into yeah. the superiority complex of looking at people. And one of the things I when I teach the class, I'm constantly reminding people that people aren't stupid. Like, they're not ignorant sheep. They don't look for people to follow. Like, you ask any individual that you think is that way, and you'll find they're a very clear conception of themselves. They see themselves Mm -hmm. as making decisions. Um, Like, people are people wherever you go, and they're never the people that you think they are. So there's always a kind of irony to it. Like, the thing about the lion's not, you know... um, you don't know whether that's a joke, you know. You don't know whether they yeah, are saying, "Oh, this is funny." Um, yeah. And you know, people always do things with a sense of irony, and I think it's important to be able to say, "Okay, what's a message trying to do? Like, what's its logic?" When I see a, a message that's intentionally persuading me, like the lion's not sheep. Well, this mm-hmm. is clear dichotomy. But the person wearing the, sh- the shirt 
isn't just reflecting um, the, the message that they wear, right? This is a very common thing when we see people and the things that they wear. Um, we judge them based on the messaging of the, the ads that the things show us. So we see someone in a uh, athletic costume and they're like, oh, you're trying to be Michael Jordan or whatever. I say Michael Jordan because I've like raised in the 80s and the yeah. 80s. But, um, but you were like, oh, I bet you're, you think you're all that, you know, but all you maybe just go to the store and buy the yeah. thing that was there and they're wearing it. Like they just yeah. buy the t-shirts that happen to be there, like Nirvana t-shirts with the little like, like Nirvana was the anti-culture and now they have t-shirts at Walmart everywhere with the Nirvana yeah. with the crossed eyes. And you're like, oh, you bet you think you're some countercultural like hero. <laughs> well, no, it's just a shirt that was, they probably didn't even know who Nirvana is. There's just a funny shirt that they saw yeah. in the store. So the, I think the important thing is to always distinguish between the motives of people and the, and the logic of the messages that we see. Um, and I think it's fun to sort of deconstruct the, the ad campaign but then when you see people falling for it, don't see them as a mirror image of the ad campaign. Sometimes people do things just sometimes for the opposite reason that they do it. And I think if there is a kind of basic charitability that I think we need to give people, no matter their political spectrum, there's the, there's the um, like, I can, I can hate on Russian um, propaganda system, like the, the idea of the messaging mm -hmm. that's produced. But any individual who is a part of it um, what's interesting, there's this, I think it was the Washington Post, they get these recordings from uh, conversations like on the phone between soldiers and their family back home. Mm. And, and just to hear the way that the, the people are like sometimes shocked or sometimes horrified at what they do, or they're just like, yeah, I stole this bike the other day and everyone's got a TV. Like, it's like, we just stole all these TVs from these things. And someone's yeah. got like 10 TVs and the person on the other line's kind of laughing. And the guy is just like, he's not like condemning it, but he's not, um, celebrating it either. It's just like, well, yeah, this is a shit that we're doing and it's mm. ridiculous at some level. Um, and so he knows that it's not real, but he's saying it anyway. And he's a part of it. Like, so I think there's a basic humanity where we have to say, yeah, some people say really terrible things and that's a terrible things that we should confront them. But we also have to acknowledge that there are people doing it for a reason that they have something in, in them that think it's the right thing. Um, and it's a delicate balance because we have to hate the message. It's kind of like hate the sin and love the sinner sort of thing. Yeah. Like, that's a Christian idea. Like hate the message, not love the messenger, but at <laughs> least try to understand what they're doing and treat them as human beings. And it's really important to be mm. able to do that. So I love to diagram the messages. But when I come to human individuals, they're always very surprising about why they do what they do. And there's always something in even the person that you hate the most that you can usually connect with at some level, um, surprisingly. So I don't know if that answers it. But oh, yes, yeah, it did. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that was a great time. I really appreciated talking to you, Dr. Crick. And yeah, this was fun. Yeah, I wish you all the best the rest of this year. Um, all right. Yeah, but I'll hopefully see you around. All right, well, thank you, Cole.